0: Well, he was doing it again. Both the Pharisees and the disciples had finally come to the place where they thought they understood Jesus and what he was about. And then he goes and does something that upset the whole apple cart. This time it was the people Jesus hung around with. Jesus was walking through the marketplace with his disciples. Maybe they were looking things over, trying to decide what to have for lunch and as they walked, they approached the tax collector's booth, a site that affected them the way we'd be affected by a, well, a military recruiting station. That booth and anyone in it symbolized the power of the state, the power of Rome and of Herod. In those days, there were taxes on virtually everything. Sounds familiar. Uh, road taxes, bridge taxes, taxes on it, trade goods, personal taxes, household taxes... Needless to say, the tax collector was not the most popular person on the planet. The tax collector could argue, of course, that the taxes would be collected by somebody else if he didn't do it. He could argue that he was simply a small cog in a very large machine, but such arguments carried little weight. Not only was Matthew the face people saw when they paid their burdensome taxes, he was the face of Rome and Rome's puppet Herod. He was a thief. And a traitor, which means that most Jews would have had little, if anything, to say to him. And most of what was said should not be repeated um, in polite company. The disciples probably thought Jesus would cross to the other side of the street, or maybe they'd hoped he'd give the tax collector a little bit of that sharp prophetic tongue. Whatever they expected to happen, it was probably not what did, in fact, happen. Because just when the disciples thought they understood, What Jesus was doing, he threw them a great big curve. As they passed the tax booth, Jesus spoke to the man sitting there. He spoke to the tax collector named Matthew, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus was doing it again. He was confounding their expectations, talking to the wrong person, saying the wrong thing. Jesus was doing it again. Well, sometime later, Jesus was having dinner at somebody's house, and Matthew doesn't say whose house it was. Maybe it was maybe it belonged to Matthew. It's, it's possible, especially when we look at the other dinner guests, tax collectors and sinners, the kinds of people that Matthew would have been obliged to hang around with, his peers, thieves and traitors, and drunkards and prostitutes, and who knows who else were gathered at the table to eat with Jesus. And there in the middle of this bunch of social and religious outcast sat this young rabbi. Theologically akin to the Pharisees, at least when it came to the central teachings of the faith, but he'd obviously missed, um, well, that seminary course on pastoral ethics because there he was doing it again, eating with people whom any other rabbi would have considered anathema, unclean, untouchable. If somebody needed to give Jesus that sermon on avoiding the appearance of evil, on guilt by association, he clearly needed a good dose of Psalm 1 So then the Pharisees, like good religious folk of all ages, engaged in some not so subtle behind the hand whispering about Jesus and his poor judgment. But Jesus heard them and responded, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and read the prophet Hosea and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. In other words, you holy people don't need me. These sinners do. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And surely the merciful thing to do is to be with and to teach and to minister to and befriend those in need. In other words, why are you surprised? Isn't this what God calls us to? And shouldn't it be the way you yourselves behave? Jesus was doing it again, confounding the Pharisees and the disciples, acting in ways that were just not right, at least according to the rules of proper society And proper religious behavior. And again, sometime later, a leader came forward and knelt at Jesus' feet. Matthew's Greek does not identify this man any further, but most translators identify him with Jairus from Mark 5, and so call him a leader of the synagogue. The leader of the synagogue came and knelt at Jesus' feet. And that event alone would have taken the air out of everybody who witnessed it, the representative of proper religious observance kneeling before this rabbi who himself seemed to have a pretty cavalier attitude toward the way things were supposed to be done. Talk about old wineskins making way for new. Well, what the synagogue official said was even more astonishing. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus immediately got up and followed the synagogue ruler home, and the disciples followed Jesus. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. This woman comes from out of nowhere. She sneaks up on Jesus, and with good reason. She was, according to Leviticus 15, unclean. A woman was considered unclean during her menstrual period, She was not to be touched by anyone since her impurity would be passed on to them. She was kept from the synagogue and the temple until such time as her cycle ended, and then after following the appropriate cleansing, she could re-enter the synagogue and the community. But as long as the blood was flowing, the woman remained unclean, untouchable, impure, separated from her family, her community, and her faith. And this woman's blood had been flowing for 12 years. Her illness not only limited her physically, It had cut her off from other good and necessary things for 12 years. And while the law made room for a woman to return after her normal time of bleeding, it made no provision for the circumstances faced by this unnamed woman. There was no room for her under the law. But somehow she knew that Jesus was different. Somehow she sensed power Within him, or maybe she simply sensed his compassion. Maybe she'd seen him hanging around with other unclean people. Maybe she thought his willingness to stretch and even break the rules of behavior in order to be faithful would extend to a woman in her situation. Or maybe she simply figured she had nothing else to lose. And then, underneath every other motive, Matthew tells us, was her faith that God would use Jesus to heal her. So she came up behind him and touched the fringes of his robe, the tassels he wore to remind him to keep the commandments. She touched him and immediately made him unclean. Jesus felt her touch and turned to speak to her and spoke words, not of rebuke, but of benediction and promise, telling her that her faith had healed her. And upon his speaking those words, the woman was healed. He did it again. Any other rabbi would have been angry at the woman for touching him and making him unclean. Now, that uncleanness could be remedied, it's true, but not without some effort, effort that would have interrupted the rabbi's work, in this case, going to visit with the bereaved family of an important member of the community. The woman's act was not only inconvenient, it was forbidden, and the rabbi would have been justified in his anger, both socially and theologically. But Jesus once again seems to set the rules aside in the face of the overwhelming need before him. Whether it was the need for salvation and tax collectors and other sinners or the need for healing in this woman, Jesus seemed less concerned with rules than he was with doing God's will. In this case, putting compassion before ritual, mercy before sacrifice. That same mercy brought him to the home of the synagogue official. It caused him to dismiss the hired mourners It led him to the little girl's bed and that same mercy caused Jesus to break yet another rule by taking the hand of a corpse, also ritually unclean, and led him to raise that little girl from the dead. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus has told the Pharisees to go and ponder these words from the prophet Hosea, words given to the prophet by the Lord, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then while the Pharisees were off stage pondering, Matthew gives us several living examples of how Jesus understood these words. And before his life on earth would end, Jesus would give us plenty more. Now, it's important to recognize that Jesus was not doing away with the law by acting the way he did. He was not repudiating Judaism. We have every reason to believe that Jesus was a faithful Jew attending the synagogue and participating in sacrifices in the temple. He was not replacing Judaism with some new religion. Um, That division would happen later. And only after it became clear that Christ's followers could no longer fit into Judaism. Jesus was not even opposing the religious and societal rules of the Pharisees, rules which helped the Jews maintain their sense of peoplehood during Roman occupation. He was calling on the Pharisees to take a step back and remember what lies at the heart of the rules, which is the love of God. Jesus was calling the Pharisees to remember that it is God's will that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves and that we place that law above every other law, but the one that calls us to love God completely. God gave the law to Moses and God did enable the Jews to create a system of rules and principles that help maintain their integrity as a people. But as Jesus tells the Pharisees and as he shows us, even those God-given and essential rules must be tempered by the demands of mercy and the call to love. The law is not overlooked or disobeyed so much as it is put in perspective by the command to love. That's why Jesus felt free to step outside the bounds in order to reach out to those in need, even at the risk of becoming unclean and doing what appeared to be wrong. He knew that the same God who gave the law also said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus didn't follow the expectations given him by his followers or his critics He did not always stay comfortably within the box created for him and every other Jew. Neither did he stay within the box created for every loyal subject of Rome. He didn't step outside of these boundaries willy-nilly or for no good reason. But when the call to mercy and love demanded, when those in need of healing were to be found outside those boundaries, Jesus did not hesitate to step outside for the sake of the one in need. He did not hesitate to gather a community of tax collectors and sinners, the unclean and the unwell, the sick and the dead. As he said, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Well, we've seen how the Pharisees reacted to Jesus when he behaved in ways that seemed beyond the boundaries set by the law. And we know from our reading of the other Gospels that the disciples often reacted in the same way, with misunderstanding, with challenge, with questions, with rebuke. Whenever they thought they'd nailed down a Jesus they could be comfortable with, Jesus did something that upset the apple cart and force them to think again. Now, from this distance, we may find it easy to tolerate a Jesus who steps outside the bounds of proper religious behavior. We may even admire him. Of course, he should eat with tax collectors. After all, we know what happened to Matthew and Zacchaeus, right? They became good and faithful disciples. Everything turned out all right in the end. And yes, of course, Jesus should allow the bleeding woman to touch his robe and should not repudiate her. After all, we know what happened next, right? She was healed and restored to her place in the community, in the synagogue. Everything turned out all right in the end. And yes, Jesus did the right thing in touching the corpse of that little girl. After all, we know what happened next. He raised her from the dead. She was restored to life. And her family witnessed a mighty act of God, which likely changed them forever. Another happy ending. But what if we were in the shoes of those Pharisees and didn't have the benefit of hindsight? What if we saw Jesus doing these things? with no guarantee, whatever, that things would turn out right, that sinners and tax collectors would become faithful disciples of Jesus, that the unclean would become whole, that the dead would rise again. Would we, if we were in their shoes, would we react any differently than the Pharisees to what seemed to be Jesus' reckless attitude toward what we held to be true and even sacred? Who is it that we consider unclean? Who is it that we consider beyond the pale, Or outside the bounds of our faith and practice? Who is it that we consider to be untouchable? Who is it that we would not eat with for fear of what others would say or for fear of the law? Who is it that we would not associate with for fear of being contaminated? Who is it that we would consider being a hopeless case? Someone as good as dead? Go ahead, use your imagination. We've all got those lists in our heads, right? We all know who's beyond the reach of God's mercy. We all have someone whom we define ourselves against. We all have a list of those we've already consigned to hell. Don't we? Am I the only one? <laughs> Think about it. Plan members, murderers, terrorists, racists, abusers of children, gang members, liberals, fundamentalists, Jews, Muslims, pagans, Poor people, rich people, people with AIDS, people with drug addiction, alcoholics, Wall Street executives, politicians, homosexuals, the careless, the self centered, the proud, the weak, the helpless, the homeless, and on and on. We've all got our lists. Until we finally begin naming the names of those individuals we know are beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy. People with whom we would never eat for fear of guilt by association. People whom we'd never touch for fear of contamination. People from whom we feel separated, not just by whim or preference, but by our obedience to the scripture and the rules and practices of the church. People from whom we feel separated, not only by personal, but by theological walls, which must not be breached. At least not without some pretty firm guarantees that everything is going to turn out okay. That the one on the other side is going to become a recognizably faithful disciple of Christ. And if we're really honest, aren't there even some folks that we sort of want to remain beyond the reach of God's saving grace? Isn't there just a little bit of Jonah in all of us? Don't we all have at least someone we see the way Jonah saw the Ninevites, as someone not only outside the people of God, but someone whom we think does not deserve even the chance to repent? If that's true, if we all have such lists, then I think we need to ask ourselves, how would we feel if Jesus were to step right over our social and theological walls and embrace that person on the other side? What would our reaction be? How would we respond to his suggestion that we go back and study that line from Hosea again? A line spoken by the Lord through the prophet. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What would our next move be? Will we stand put on our side of the boundary as many did in Jesus day and have done since? Or would we dare take the step of faith that puts us with Jesus on the other side of the boundary, eating with tax collectors and sinners? being touched by and touching the unclean, calling not the righteous, but sinners? Would we trust in Jesus and the power of God to bring salvation to that one in whatever form it takes? Would we risk scandal and disapproval for the sake of mercy and healing? Can we imagine ourselves acting compassionately and without regard for all the rules and walls we create to separate us from those in need of healing? What would our next move be? And while we're asking ourselves what we do, Jesus just keeps moving along. He touches the blind and they see. He casts out demons. He just keeps on moving, teaching and preaching and healing, seeing the needs around him, being moved by compassion, holding mercy over the keeping of the rules, and calling his disciples to do the same thing. Jesus challenges us this morning to consider what it means to say that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus calls us to live compassionately, offering ourselves to everyone we meet, whether we think they deserve it or not. He calls us to take a step back from all the rules and all the instructions and all the carefully built boundaries and allow room for the Holy Spirit to create within us a Christ-like compassion, the ability to imagine those around us, as other, not as others to be feared or ostracized, but to imagine them instead as sheep without a shepherd, wandering, lost, lost but all precious in the sight of God. Sisters and brothers in need of a touch, a word, a blessing, people like us, unrighteous sinners, utterly dependent upon God for our healing and for our salvation, not aliens and strangers, not enemies and unclean, but beloved children of God already within the bounds of God's wide, wide mercy, if we just open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and see that it is so. This is our call from Christ on this Mission Sunday, to take the Christ-like risk of putting aside our preconceived notions of who is worthy of God's mercy and who is not, to take the Christ-like risk of imagining that God's love and grace are so much bigger and deeper than our understanding and our best laid theological plans, and then daring to act like it is true, to understand ourselves as continuing the work of the compassionate Jesus, becoming agents of his healing, proclaiming his hope, and bearing witness to his mercy wherever we go and to whomever we meet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen us to heed Christ's call. Amen.